Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting Harvesting Happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. This episode offers psychosocial education designed to inspire and motivate our listeners. The information provided does not constitute a therapeutic relationship nor a substitute for professional mental health care. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911, go to your nearest emergency room, or for listeners in the United States, text 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where we will explore neurodynamics and technology. My guest today is Dr. Carl D. Marcy, MD. He is a friend of the show and coming back to talk with us about his book, Again, Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age. Dr. Marcy is a leader in the fields of social and consumer neuroscience. He's also chief medical officer at Kava Capital, and was formerly the chief neuroscientist at the Nielsen Company. He is also on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and is a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Carl, thanks for coming back today. I am super excited to continue our conversation. Oh, Lisa, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Yes, yes, yes. Well, let's get to it. Let's talk a little bit about neurodynamics and define it once again for the audience. I think about neurodynamics as uh, the the changing brain. And of course, all our brains are changing all the time. And I make very few guarantees in life, but I guarantee (laughs) that the brain your audience started with at the beginning of this podcast and the brain your audience ends with at at the end of this podcast, it will not be the same brain. Why? Because hopefully your audience is engaged. And by that, I mean, they're paying attention. They're having emotional responses. They're laying down some memory traces And for some of them, that might actually influence their future behavior. And that little sequence of events, attention to something that emotionally impacts you and leaves a memory trace and influences your behavior, is a neuroscience definition of engagement that I came up with a number of years ago to help us understand how consumers engage with technology. And that's part of how I ended up writing this book, because I had a front row seat in 2007 the atom splitting moment when Steve Jobs gets up and introduces the world to the iPhone. And our clients wanted to understand this new technology. And we had some very sophisticated tools to look at it. And therein lies both the slippery slope and the promise, right? I mean, it's a double-edged sword because technology has changed our world so rapidly and in many cases for the better. And then on the other hand, the technology has changed our lives so rapidly for the worse, because it's hard for us to suss out and decipher what's real and what's not. Right. It's the proverbial knife, right? In the hands of a surgeon, it's a tool for healing. In the hands of a murderer, it's a tool for death and destruction. So it's about intent. Um, And part of what I argue in the book is not 
that I'm against technology. I love technology. It's that to embrace it so quickly without any signposts and rules to the road is dangerous. And in the book, I use the example of Detroit in 1908 when another technology was introduced. And that technology was the Model T, the Ford. And for the first time, cars were available at scale. And 1908, to buy a car was about $3,000. That was T, a lot. <laughs> the Model T was only 500. And so all of a sudden, people could buy them. It took 10 years before there was a stop sign in Detroit. And those 10 years, a lot of people died. There was a lot of chaos. There were no rules to the road. And, and it was a disaster. It was another three years before the stoplight patent was even filed. Uh, and then we went on a 100-year journey of improving safety right? Better lights, better signs, airbags, seatbelts, yeah. right? Sensors now, right? I mean, these cars got safer and safer and safer until 2016 was the first year that death per mile in this country went up and it's gone up every year since. And it's precisely because of another technology, the smartphone, right? Yeah. Exactly. Between digital distraction while driving, whether it's Texting or talking. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, not just the smartphone, but all the accoutrements in the car that make it easier to use, right? I mean, you remember, I'm sure, when everybody talked about how the Japanese were killing Detroit in terms of the quality of cars, right? Remember that whole debate? Well, guess what? Over time, we got better. And now all cars are pretty much the same quality. So they had to compete on the interior, like cool gadgets, all of which are very distracting and allow us to use our phones a little too frequently. Well, I was also thinking of the self-driving vehicle. That's another area which we can get into the conversation about how neurodynamics relates to AI, which you and I are eager to chat about. Absolutely. But the point is that, look, we're all rewiring our brains as a result of these yeah. new technologies. None of us are immune. The question is, are we doing that in a reactive way that is serving you know, other companies or other interests that can be dangerous, whether it's misinformation or political influence or, you know, buying things you just don't need? Or are we doing it in a way that facilitates our lives, right? Oh, I can, you know, communicate with loved ones who are far away more easily. I can share to a broader audience my new book. I can get ideas out to the world and I can receive information in ways I couldn't before. You know, all of that's possible. We just have to be a little bit more thoughtful. To go back to the automobile story, and I write about this in the book, right? We don't allow kids to drive a car until they're 16 years old, until they've passed a cognitive test, a behavioral test. And even then they have a chaperone in most states for several months. And even then the insurance companies are going to charge a premium until you're at least in your mid-20s. That's so true. Right? But we're giving people a supercomputer in their pocket with zero training at on average now at age nine. Well, I would have guessed earlier. That's interesting. That's when you get penetration like into the 70%. But like nowadays, you're right. There's data showing that kids less than three years old, like 50% of them have access to them and are using them. I mean, some of these statistics are, you know, growing every day and they're hard to keep up with. In your research, what happens to these kids who are having like the three or four-year-old who's using the tablet or using the phone? They're incredibly quick with their fingers. They know how to manipulate it to get where they want to go. But what suffers on the other side? Are they, do they not have as, as, as good coordination? Are they not as athletically inclined? I mean, where is the suffering? Yeah, it's a great question. So first, let's start with the fingers, right? Yeah. I remember my daughter at age two and a half or three 
playing with the iPad. And I was like, oh my God, she's so smart. Look at her just navigating this thing. And then I realized, no, she's not smart. Steve Jobs is smart because yeah. he made a technology that a two-year-old could use, right? So let's not confuse <laughs> who's yeah. smart here, right? Yeah. And even he wouldn't let his kids use it, yes. to be clear. And that's well-documented, right? So number one. Number two, what do we know from the, the research? And it's actually quite clear and a little bit disturbing, right? So under the age of three, for every hour of media a child consumes per day, the risk of ADHD at seven goes up by 10%. Wow. Right? So that that's well documented. And the relationship between early media exposure and ADHD is now pretty well established across many studies. So this is not like speculative anymore. Is that because of the reward circuit being like it's such immediate gratification with the phone that there is no distress tolerance? Is that why? Or... So I, I don't know that we know 100% why, but we can easily speculate, right? So number one, like you said, you're tuning your reward system to a very different set of stimuli, right? And part of what that represents is this two-dimensional world of the screen. Enter another phenomenon that's well-documented, the video transfer deficit. What is that? Well, we know that kids under the age of three have a very difficult time taking information from a two-dimensional screen and moving it into a three-dimensional screen. How do we know that? Do you remember baby Einstein? Yes. Right. So I write about baby Einstein in the book. There was a period years ago. So baby Einstein, for the audience members who don't know. Yeah, there might be too recall. young to know who baby Einstein is. <laughs> so it was actually started by a mom, her first child, little girl. The mom was, you know, looking around for educational content for her child and couldn't find any. So she went in her basement with her husband's video camera and got some hand puppets and some music and made some videos. And her child was mesmerized. And so she started to produce these things. And there was a certain point where two out of three households in this country with a child under the age of three had at least one baby Einstein DVD. And parents were bragging about how long their children would watch these things and they could sit mesmerized and they, they must be learning, right? Well, flash forward seven or eight years after she sold the company to Disney, by the way, and American Journal of Pediatrics comes out with a big study showing that there was a correlation between how much media exposure, including baby Einstein, young children had and their inability to read. Wow. What happened was not only were they not getting ahead, they were actually falling behind. And that is what led to the research on this video transfer deficit, which basically means that, yeah, a kid can sit there titillated and mesmerized by lights moving and sound and puppets, but that doesn't mean they're actually learning anything, number one. And then number two, what you're doing is you're distracting them from what they really should be doing, which is engaging with the world and engaging face-to-face in a reciprocal relationship with physical touch and gestures and utterances, right? Which is how we evolved for a million years uh, to develop language and pro-social skills. So I think part of the ADHD is the displacement of other neurodevelopmental interactions, you know, with caregivers, siblings, play, and, you know, the reinforcing of sight, sound, and motion on a screen that triggers the reward centers to say, no, I want more of that. It's like the unhealthy snack, right? You can sit and, you know, Doritos are tasty. You mm -hmm. want to have more of them. But if you eat those all day, you're going to be nutritionally deprived, right? So we can't always trust our intuition on these things. This is fascinating. And I wonder if the inability to translate or pivot from a 2D world to a 3D world impacts coordination. So like we're not as dexterous with our hands and our coordination. I don't know if that's true. Well, again, even if it's not directly causally related to looking at a screen, 
to the extent that you're doing this and kids are doing this now for three, four, five, six yeah. hours a day, right? What are they not doing? They're not rolling They're around. They're not playing. They're not playing. Right. <laughs> right. And so that's where you lose the, the skills. And there's another great statistic in the book that shocked me, right? So the rates of myopia, nearsightedness in certain countries, including ours, are now rising faster than any genetic or any phenomenon would make sense. And and in South Korea, I believe an 18-year-old boy has a 95% chance of needing glasses. Wow. And the question was why, right? And so everyone's like, well, it's too much screen time, right? Well, you know what? Guess what? Turns out it wasn't actually the screens. It was what kids were not doing because of screens is going outside, right? So it turns out we need, like you're sitting in a room, I'm sitting in a room. The amount of lumens, right? The brightness is several hundred. Outside, even on a cloudy day, it's several thousand, right? And so the eye has dopamine in it, same dopamine that's in our brain, but it does a different job in the eye. And what it does, is it allows us to fixate and adjust. And if we don't get enough dopamine in our eyes because of sunlight, we can't accommodate, we end up needing glasses. Now, again, that's a different kind of rewiring, but it's very real rewiring. Fascinating. And what about the deprivation of sunlight and the impact on mood? Well, That's, not to mention the potential yeah. for mood disorders. Now, yeah. the, the whole premise of the book is that all of this stuff combined, the neurodynamics of early development, rewiring people, spending too much time on social media, all things we can talk about, ultimately are setting us up and putting us at higher risk for mental health issues, whether it's anxiety, depression, ADHD, all of which are going up at double digit rates is incredibly concerning. Now, there's many factors that probably go into that. But I argue in the book that too much media consumption is absolutely contributing to it. Well, too much media consumption is, is just not good for us. I mean, really, you know, we need to be having more interrelationships rather than these one-sided relationships or the voyeuristic relationships that we get from social media. Among the disservices that Facebook did was this idea that we have friends online, right? They're not friends, right? These are you know barely acquaintances and mostly people we don't really know that well, that we're spending an awful lot of time curating a version of ourselves to the world uh, and presenting it. And we could we could talk about what that does to the teenage brain. Let's. Okay. Let's. Yeah, okay. let's. I mean, why not go there? Because many of our listeners have either teenagers at home or young adults. Or maybe we even have a few teenagers who might be curious and listening, and it's important for them to understand. Absolutely. Well, so let's sort of recap, right? So from zero to three, you know, the ability to take information from a two-dimensional screen to the three-dimensional world is extremely limited. Around age three, they start to be able to actually absorb information. So things like, you know, and I tell people, parents are like, well, are you saying no media at all? It's like, no, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics says, you know, one hour a day, very reasonable, but not all content is the same, right? So guess what? Long form, professionally produced educational content, think Sesame Street, Dora the Explorer, you know, even SpongeBob has a little bit of a uh, redeeming quality. SpongeBob right? is teaching things. Come on. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm just saying like, like that, I would have my child watch that on a single large screen with their siblings and me occasionally. I let them do that much, much, much better than here's a tablet, YouTube yeah. kids, and have at it. Why? Because they have too much control. The content is not professionally produced. So it's all titillation. They just get overwhelmed and, and that leads to all kinds of problems. Okay. Then we get into three to five. It's all about reading, right? Turns out paper 
is better than pixels, right? So there's data showing that holding a book, the haptics of that, and sitting with a, a parent or, or caregiver and reading, there's more physical touch. There's more discussion of the story. When you're on an e-reader, you're talking about tap that and flip this, and you get too caught up in the, huh. in the technology and you miss the story and you miss the interaction. And there's data to support that. And then there's also data to show that kids who uh, experience a lot of media at, at that age, the sort of three to five age, don't have the same quality of reading network in their brain. So they're not as good at reading as kids who are exposed to less media. Again, stands to reason, right? If you're spending your time doing that. Okay. Then we get into the kind of latency age, five to 12. Big issue there is now computers in the classroom, right? More media exposure. And in the book, I talk about media multitasking becomes Oof. a real issue. Yeah. What is that? Right. You're, you know, you're at home watching TV and you're on your computer, you're playing video games and you're on your phone, right? All at That's once a, in my household. I go, how is that possible? Well, Either you're a genius <laughs> and I'm missing something. I don't even understand how you can understand anything that you're working on at the same well, time. Guess, <laughs> guess what? They're not. So yeah. <laughs> when you look at the studies on multitasking, and this has been done over and over and over again, you see two things. Error rate goes up and processing speed goes down. So let me do yeah. that again. Study after study after study shows that error rate goes up, processing speed goes down. Yet we all do it. Right? Oh, we it's all a toggling, it. right? We're toggling and then there's that startup. The, there's a lag time in the starting up between switching tasks as well. So it's just inefficient. It's very inefficient yeah. because you're constantly monotask switching, right? And and everything gets worse. And there's brain imaging to support this. Your prefrontal cortex, which is really the most sophisticated and most important part, right? Right behind your, your eye sockets in your forehead, um, the most highly evolved part of the brain. In the book, I use the metaphor of the conductor in our own brain symphonies, right? We want harmony, not cacophony. That is what is at most risk. And when we're multitasking, we're actually stressing out our prefrontal cortex. And unlike muscles, which get stronger with more use, uh, the prefrontal cortex just gets tired. And so I've given talks at, uh, I live in Boston, right? So I'm at MIT, right? Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Smart people. That and is so smart. <laughs> right? and, I'm, and I'm telling these kids, they, they shouldn't be multitasking. They're all like, hey, wait, you know, look, I, um, I multitask all the time. I came out, okay. I was like, yeah, you got an MIT, right? You have a big brain right? You probably have a very high IQ. So yeah. if you lost five or 10 IQ points, nobody's going to notice, right? right? But they're if you not going to notice. <laughs> they're not going to You take 10 IQ points across an entire population, right? Well, you end up with some really bad outcomes and you could argue that's starting to happen. And I think this is the point of as much as this technology is able to enhance our intelligence and expand it, it also is dumbing us down to a degree in this multitasking world. We need to take a break. So let's do that and come back. To learn more about Dr. Carl Marcy, please go to rewiredthebook.com. And to learn more about his book, Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age, once again, that's rewiredthebook.com. On Twitter at CM Biometrics and on Instagram at Carl D. Marcy, MD. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Hang on just a minute. Before we take that pause, the holidays are here and I've got a great fashionable and time-saving solution during this hectic season. Kudos to Skims for their biggest holiday gift shop ever. Skims is one of my favorite go-to labels for everyone on my list. 
kids, sisters, mom, dads, brothers, girlfriends, boyfriends, best friends, and even pets. Skims is creating the next generation underwear, loungewear, and shapewear. One of my favorite holiday rituals is cozying up with the family in front of the fireplace bundled in our jammies. And this year, I bought everyone Skims cozy unisex robes in ever-fashionable onyx. My family is going to love them. I'm also stuffing everyone's stockings with Skims, the softest and most comfortable undies on the planet. Skims makes holiday shopping so easy with styles for everyone in the family. Skims Holiday Shop is the destination for all your gifting needs. You've never been this cozy for the holidays. Skims Signature Holiday collections are back for the season and designed for the whole family. Your favorite skim staples like Fits Everybody, Cotton, Soft Lounge, and Sleep are now available in cheerful colors and festive prints. Collections are available in sizes extra extra small to 4X for women and come unisex styles and start at newborn sizing for kids. Believe the hype. Skims has over 100,000 five-star reviews for a reason. Skims Holiday Gift Shop is now open at skims.com. Plus get free shipping on orders over $75. After you place your order, be sure to let them know we sent you. Select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. Each day we have the intellectual freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable, regardless of external circumstance. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, urge them to seek professional support because good psychological health is vital in achieving a satisfying life. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for psychosocial educational resources to boost emotional and social intelligence. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness? Sharing is caring. Pay it forward by spreading the word to your tribe through social media. Find us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook and me at Lisa Kamen on Twitter. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Carl D. Marcy. We're talking about neurodynamics and technology. Let's return to the conversation. So Carl, let's just circle back to a young brain on technology. And we have yet to go through all of the phases of development. So let's circle back to that before we go on to where I want to go. <laughs> yeah, well, where we left off was this sort of period that's uh, developmental psychologists called latency. It's sort of roughly between five and 12. Right. So you're you're out of the toddler stage and early childhood, school age years. And they're thought to be some of the most, I think, enjoyable for parents because, you know, the kids' brains are big enough where they're, you know, you don't have to watch them 24-7. They still respect your authority. Hormones haven't kicked in. This is a very interesting time. What the risk there, as we were just talking about, is the introduction of media multitasking or multitasking in general. Because they're introduced to computers at school. They're starting to have more computers at home. There's just more screens in their life. And so what, what I talk about in the book at this stage, you really got to teach kids the value of monotasking, right? When you're doing homework, it's got to just be homework, right? Put the phones away, put the screens away. At night before bed, take the phone away from the kid. There's just going to be too much temptation to be on screens at night. And I, I think in the book, I quote the statistic. I, I won't get it exactly right. But on average in the U.S. household, you know, children, have between three and five screens just in their bedroom. Wow. Just in their bedroom. You imagine the video game and the TV and the phone and the iPad and the computer. Boom, right? You're there. It's crazy. So, so that's latency. And then you get into the fun part, right? Adolescence, right? And we used to think that adolescence was this 
enigma of a brain. And, and it didn't make sense because how can kids this age be be so bright, so full of promise, uh, sometimes, you know, just do things that that are inspiring, um, but yet be so stupid, right? And and take sort of risks. Um, and, and, you know, that's been the, the sort of uh, enigma of adolescence. Well, guess what? It turns out when you understand what's happening in the brain, you can understand adolescence. And it's summarized, you know, I hate to keep going back to car metaphors, but if you think about the adolescent brain as too much gas and not enough brake, all of a sudden it starts to make sense, right? So if you think evolutionary perspective and you think about what adolescence is about, well, it's about hormones to set us up for reproductive success and to separate from our family unit, right? Those are the big jobs. Like the big job of adolescence is to mature to the point where we can go off on our own and we can have our own babies to propagate the species, which we've been wildly successful at as a species, right? So what happens during that period, right? Well, during that period, not only are hormones kicking in, but the brain begins to go through this really interesting organizational change. And what's unique about the human brain is that areas become more specialized so they get more dense, different areas of the brain, and they become more interconnected. And that's what sort of sets up this, this really cool period of, of creativity and growth and exploration. Now, remember we were talking about the prefrontal cortex? Mm-hmm. And we were talking about how it's the sort of conductor in our own personal symphonies. Well, it's the last part of the brain yeah. to mature, right? Yeah. And it really does and fully blossom until the mid-20s. So you've got the hormones and the emotion and the reward <laughs> oh, <how> system, <laughs> right? They're all just firing away. <laughs> and, and then you got this poor break called the prefrontal cortex is just trying to keep up. And, and, and now that explains adolescence, right? Now, enter social media, enter technology, you know, to a brain that's going through this period of hyperchange, too much gas, not enough break. And Eric Erickson, the great developmental psychologist, said there's really only two questions that matter when you're an adolescent. You know, who am I and how do I fit in? Who am I and how do I fit in? Well, if you're an adolescent and you're on social media and you've got all these different social groups, or maybe you're on different media, social media platforms, right? How are you going to understand who you are? When you're sending out a highly curated version of yourself to lots of people you don't even know, and you're getting, you know, likes back and forth, right? It's going to be very confusing. Don't you think? Oh, I think it's extremely confusing. And I'm thinking about what you were saying about the multiple platforms, right? If you're somebody who's on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and so on and so on, you're toggling even in within that world to multiple spaces. Like, right. How do you have time to do anything else? I totally agree. And yeah. there's another framework here called social identity theory and the great Shakespeare quote, all the world's a stage and we are merely actors and actresses in it. Well, you know, social identity theory contemplates, you know, really one stage, right? You and I are on a stage right now. We're talking to each other. We're talking to an audience. We're presenting a very professional version of our identity. You know, after this is over, you know, we might chat a little bit more as we get to know each other and develop a friendship. And then you're going to go home and you're going to have your family and going to interact with them in a very different way. Right. So we've got our backstage friends and family and intimate people. We have our front stage audience that we're projecting a version of ourselves to. With social media, you've got three, four, five, seven stages, different kinds of identities. It can be incredibly confusing to adolescents who are just trying to answer a simple question, right? Who am I and how do I fit in? <laughs> so, so what I, you know, tell folks is like, look, you know, if you're going to be on social media, first of all, you know, pick one platform, try not to be on too many. 
number one. Number two, recognize it for what it is. They talk about the social media seesaw, right? That's the metaphor I use in the book, right? There are good aspects to social media, organizing friends, you know, finding support, you know, when, you know, for, for groups that are very isolated, connecting uh, with loved ones who are far away, getting your message out, right? There's, there's definitely some positive things there. Where it becomes negative is where it becomes a means to an end or an end to itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and people get, uh, you know, we know from neuroimaging studies that if I show, you know, adolescents a whole bunch of images and I just put random numbers on them, the bigger that number is, the more their dopamine centers and their reward centers. Of course. Yeah. Right. Right. We just, we're, we're fine tuned for social uh, response and social va- evaluations. So this idea of like, oh, you got so many likes, it's very, very powerful. Well, that's the drug, right? They're getting the, the dopamine hit, you know, they feel good. So then the, the, the social media platform becomes rewarding in and of itself. Now, during the break, I was telling you about some news reports I heard recently, just this morning on the news was a town in Boston, uh, just outside of Boston, Salem, Massachusetts, happens to be the home of the Salem Witch Trial. One of the high schools is now enforcing a rule that when the, when the high school kids come into school, they have to put their smartphone in, a, in its own little locker. They lock it up and they Love can't that. access it all day. And you know what? It's actually going really well. I mean, there's a handful of kids obviously who are upset, but like they were interviewing these kids and they're like, this is actually really nice. I don't feel, you know, the, the fear of missing out because I can't, number one. Number two, I'm talking to other people in my class that I'm really getting to know and kind of like. Imagine making friends with actual people rather than just spending all your time on social media. <laughs> and, you know, and I think the benefit to their brain is going to be significant. Um, yeah. And we're going to see more and more of this. And this is going back to the to the car metaphor. And it took 10 years before there was a stop sign. Like we just need more rules to the road. I'm not saying kids shouldn't have technology. Of course they should. It just should be developmentally appropriate. We need to understand who's at risk, high risk, medium risk, low risk. And we have to give kids some, some guidance as they use these powerful technologies. It makes very, very good sense. And years ago, I used to work a lot of inpatient for substance abuse disorder and mental health. And we would lock up the client's phones. They would be very upset. They would not like it. And we talked about neuroplasticity and teaching them to delay their gratification. And that hour in that group session without the phone is not meant to torture, right? It's actually meant to teach a skill. And they would fight and eventually they'd get it after a while. We would keep them for a long time. Back in the day, you could keep a patient for six months to a year. In oh, a rehab. right. Yeah. yeah. Now so, it's six, six days. <laughs> yeah. Six minutes, it feels like six sometimes. Minutes, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so speaking to that, that point of being able to manage without the devices, it's hard for us as adults. It's very yeah. hard. Look, and yeah. these, there are deprivation studies where you sort of take take these phones away and, and they have very interesting consequences. But I'll give you just one example. So college age kids, right? And you give them a math test, challenging test. And there's three conditions. The one condition, the smartphone is outside, tucked away, nowhere near the classroom. The second one, it's uh, underneath their seat, turned off. The third one, it's face down on the desk. And you look at the results of the test, it's a step function. The further away the phone is from their brain and their mind and their mind's eye, the better they do on that test. Right. And that tells you all you need yes, to know. Yes. Right. Agreed. Yeah. We're nearly out of time. And I wanted to touch upon a subject you and I are really eager to talk about. And that is the impact of AI to neurodynamics. 
Yeah. And and this is an area I'm spending a lot of time with. So one of my roles is as a chief psychiatrist for a health data and technology company. And uh, we have these large data sets of electronic health records and other data on patients. It's, it's de-identified. It's all very securely kept. Um, but we're using AI to mine the mental health space for insights. And, you know, for a long time in mental health, we've struggled because there are no biomarkers. There's no blood test, right? There's, there's no imaging test I can do to an individual and predict, you know, whether or not you're going to be depressed or predict whether or not you're bipolar or predict whether or not you're going to have treatment resistant depression. So we're beginning to use AI to build models that not only can help us diagnose patients better and earlier, but then the next step is to see who responds to what intervention. And, you know, we're in an age where there's a lot of exciting new medications coming, uh, the magic mushroom, psilocybin being one of them. We just had a new drug called Zoranolone approved for postpartum depression, which works in three days. We have other drugs coming on the market that uh, you know, really could be a new renaissance uh, in, in mental health treatment. We're going to need AI and large data sets to sort of organize our thinking around mental health in the same way Google organized the internet with its search. That is Fascinating. So this is where AI is working for the greater good. It is uh, maintaining privacy for the patient, which I think is paramount. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we get more treatments to people because we as a society really need it, right? Yeah. And and look, I, I'm I'm embarrassed as a psychiatrist. If you would have told me in 2001 when I finished my training that in 2021 I'd be practicing the same way, I would say, no way. Lisa, we're learning about the brain. There's new medications coming. We've got all this new technology, neuroimaging. It's going to be amazing. I still pretty much practice the same way I did 20 yeah. years ago. Well, I think that's going to change in the next three to five years, but it's really sad. And we're going backwards, right? More depression, more anxiety, yeah. more substance abuse, more suicide, tragically, more PTSD. As a field, we're doing terrible. It's kind of archaic, better. isn't it? Like We have to do better. Yeah, we do have to do better. I want to ask you one thing about a predictor about the hippocampus. Can a shrunken hippocampus be a predictor of depression or dementia? Absolutely. So there's data showing that, you know, the smaller your hippocampus is, uh, the more likely you are to be at risk for, for a variety of mental health issues. There's also data showing the connectivity between our emotion centers and our prefrontal cortex is a good predictor of uh, whether or not you're going to be at risk for mental health disease, which is why the book, you know, I talk about the prefrontal cortex. Really, at the end, there's recommendations. I hope your audience picks up a copy to protect your prefrontal cortex, to protect yes. your brain, right? Because we have to be resilient in the face of all this change. Which is, you know, builds the case for mental fitness, which is everything that we're ultimately talking about, right, is to strengthen our brains for the long haul, for productive, happy lives, which means Absolutely. we have to sign off for now. But you and I are going to keep having conversations because I love what we get to talk about together. It, it always makes my day. So I'm just going to say that. My pleasure. To learn more. And to have access to Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age, please go to rewiredthebook.com. You will learn more about Dr. Carl DeMarcy there. You can also find him on Twitter at CM Biometrics and on Instagram at Carl DeMarcy MD. Carl, as always, thank you so much for sharing part of your day and educating us, you know, and making us think. Always a good thing. My pleasure. 
Thanks for joining me on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. Carl D. Marcy, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.